Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome, everyone, to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, and with me for today's roundtable are my two regular co-hosts, Hi C. Lutmers. Hello, hello, hello. And Mildred Lane McDonald. Good morning, John. And a special guest, Fred Isom. Hello, pleasure to be here. Fred, welcome to the show. Uh, and Fred is uh, an intuitive coach and healer. He lives in the Boston area and is a member of the Temple of Witchcraft. Uh, you might be familiar with that from the extensive writings of Christopher Penzak. And so for today's roundtable topic, I wanted to explore meditation. I've recently been uh, out and about. I spent a lot of time in the last six months in Utah, sort of on my own, spent a lot of t- meditative time out in the mountains, and uh, then spent about a month in India. And, of course, meditation figures prominently there. So I wanted to bring meditation to the to the front of our discussion today and see what experiences and recommendations we all have. Mildred Lynn, what does meditation mean to you? What, actually, you know, it's an odd question now that I've said it over and over again. Um, I guess, do you have a sense for what, the, what does the word bring up for you, meditation? Breathing, Breathing, as I just took a deep breath. But more importantly, when I look at the energy of meditation, it's slowing down the brain waves. So if we looked at the brain waves, the gamma state or the beta state or the alpha state or the theta state or the delta state, and that's the one where advanced, let's say, Tibetan monks who have been meditating for decades can slow down to that level. But it gives us a chance to work towards no time and space. Now, I also wanted to add the word meditation. A lot of times when you say it to people, they say, I can't meditate. So what I would suggest is maybe the word meditation is changed to something like 
brainwave vacation. Have you had a brainwave vacation recently? Oh, oh, <laughs> a vacation, a brainwave <laughs> vacation. Oh, that's See, positive connotations there. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're asking me what meditation means, that's where I immediately go. I go to the different states of the brain waves, and through breathing, it becomes slower and slower and slower, moving towards a state of no space and time. I see. What about you? Just focus on the word for a second. What does meditation mean to you? Uh, well, I would actually probably use words similar to what Mildred said because for me, it means. Um, taking time out of time and space out of space. So if you think of the image like we see in in movies or TV shows where there'll be like a person and they're in perfect focus and everything around them is a blur as it all is rushing around them, but they're not moving at all. To me, that's what meditation means is this opportunity and this moment of stopping and everything else is happening all around me but I no longer have to be in it or caught up in it or a part of it in order to focus and come back to the self. Mm. And Fred, what does the word meditation mean to you? I would just say, I would say at a very fundamental level, it's the ability to find clarity, to just be able to turn things off and find clarity, turn the chatter off in my mind. And is, is that true for for uh, Heisey, you and also Mildred Lynn, that it's about the mind chatter? Do you do you get that? I mean, there's a lot of talk in, when we talk about meditation and we learn about meditation. We hear a lot about the monkey mind, about the the repetitive thoughts. Is that where your experience of meditation either starts, or does it pass through there, or what is that? What is that about for you? Well, for me, John, I don't find that I have a lot of mind chatter as Bill says, my husband Bill says, I have a lot of vacant rooms. <laughs> I always take that as a compliment. As you would as a Leo. Very, very. <laughs> I, do, I do, when I go into a state where I'm slowing down my brain waves, I immediately go into my heart chakra. That's where the action or inaction seems to take place. So that's where the focus is. Mm, okay. And see what about you? Well, something Mildred had also said a minute ago made me think, too, in terms of either the word meditation has kind of morphed in its meaning for people or it's become very narrow in the way people think about it. And for me, it's not just about the mind. Um, Certainly the mind can become a part of it. But meditation is really just that that state of focused presence. And so you can meditate where it's just focused on the body or you can meditate uh, where it's focused on the breath, um, you know. And so while those things are going to also calm the mind or focus the mind or, or whatever, meditation doesn't always have to be. And I think that's where people get a little tripped up because they think meditation equals the mind being still. And when they try to meditate and they can't stop thinking about a grocery list or whatever, they think they're not doing it right or that they can't do it. Mm. And if they can take the emphasis away from it just being about what the mind is doing versus it meditation being a state of being. Yes. 
then they would find they're able to to engage in that state of being in many different ways and many different situations rather than it just being about the mind itself. Very interesting. Well said, I see. Thank you. And Fred, for you, is what what is your bodily, I mean, is it a mind experience for you or is it more? Um, it really hits me on multiple levels, um, you know, with the chance to quite my entire being and that and that encompassing my mind and my body, my spirit, and, you know, sometimes even my heart needs to be quieted down. It just depends on, you know, on what level am I experiencing a great deal of, for lack of a better term, chatter that I want to just sort of bring down a few notches, a few levels. Um, you know, it's, it's the chance to really get in touch with my soul base. It's, it's the chance to listen to what my body or my mind, my heart, my spirit, what all those parts of my being are trying to say to me. And um, something that both Heisey and Mildred have um, touched on a little bit that I also wanted to touch on was the fact that, you know, sometimes there is that, you know, you don't necessarily always have to quiet the chatter because sometimes that chatter is there for a reason. Um, sometimes, you know, the conscious mind just needs to be acknowledged for, you know, that grocery list that keeps going over and over and over and over because you're running to the store after you've finished doing your meditative time. Right. It's okay to, it's okay to say, I know you're there. I recognize you. I honor you. Now go over there and sit in that chair for just a moment and I'll come back to you in a second. And, you know, acknowledging that conscious thought to go off to the side to then allow the other important topics words, messages, symbols, ideas to come forward and to, you know, to, to shift the way your mind is chattering, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting. There, it's almost like um, there's, uh, in the mind, we call it chatter, but in the rest of the being or the rest of the self, we might call it um, agitation or anxiety uh, mm. that we learn to acknowledge and become in some sense become intimate with so that we can so that we can acknowledge it and allow it to have its due uh let its message be be heard i guess and then and go ahead i see well and and when when that word chatter came up and uh, you know then it made me think when you asked the question what does meditation mean in a sense meditation to me means stop because that's really what meditation is about, is it's taking time to stop, whether it's a moment or 10 minutes or an hour, but it says stop. So whether it's, you know, I can't focus because my mind is going 100 miles an hour, so I need to stop, meditate, allow my mind to, to, to calm down, to process and, and refocus. Or let's say that we find we, we're just constantly doing something with our hands. You know, we just have to constantly be busy. Then meditation there is stop, sit down and let your body stop. And it's the meditation of the body in order to come back to itself, calm down from the agitation, from the chatter of all of the doing, doing, doing. So it, that word made me go back to thinking meditation in a sense means to me taking the time to stop. Yeah, I like that too. I think there's a uh, a potency in acknowledging that stopping is that stillness is a state it's a really it's a legitimate state of being and also that we have this notion of meditation as being hard 
as if it's work, as if there's effort involved. And I think that that, that might be... Uh, I mean, it's, it may be true that there's effort involved in, in meditating, but it's not the kind of effort that we're used to uh, thinking about or applying. And in fact, that kind of effort is largely counterproductive. So uh, I, the, the notion of taking a brainwave vacation, Mildred Lynn, the, the idea of shifting the nomenclature around meditation is kind of interesting because I think we've gotten in the West, we've gotten this idea that meditation is hard. And I, I think efforting around meditation is kind of the wrong direction to go. But with that having been said, um, how do you actually do your meditation? What do you do? Well, John, for me, I don't use the word meditation because it never resonated with me. I use the word visualization. And I use that word because twice a day when I wake up and when I just before I fall to sleep, I do a guided visualization with myself. And I've been doing that for seven or eight years. So it's almost at a point where it's at a reflex stage. So I go to bed, I pull the covers up and then boom, my brain waves shift. And then when I wake up in the morning or I'm aware I'm waking up in the morning, I go boom, my brain waves shift. So that's how I do it. And and that that um that practice. So there's a couple of things about that practice. One is that it's that it's in a sense it's active. Is it active? It's a reflex. It's like when you're when you're playing basketball and you've done bouncing the ball for years and then you, your mind disengages. It's reflex. But but it it took there but there's there's something about it where you're where you're you're actively involved in the visualization? Or you... Oh, I have wonderful visualizations, as you would anticipate. <laughs> of course, of course, from a Leo. <laughs> my, my brain waves slow down, and I go into a forest. And so I'm, it's like watching a movie for me. So I'm not writing the script as I'm in the forest, the only thing I do is consciously place myself at the mouth of the forest. Ah. And then energies unfold, feelings unfold, visuals unfold. And through it all, I'm observing, it never touches my emotional body. Ah, interesting. And so there is a sense of detachment there. And that took years of practice to be able to get to that point. Mm. And I found over the last three to four years, although I do a, a visualization in the morning and in the evening before I go to bed, I can pull that reflex in at any point during the day and also have the same experience. So so there was some, quote unquote, effort involved in developing the skill. Well, there was to put it in my own words, there would be a choice. A choice. There would be a focus mm -hmm. and a commitment and ah, a discipline. Right, a practice. You have to practice it. You have to do it. That's what I found for myself. I will give a big benefit that I've learned over the years is that no matter what happens during the day or what, you're con what I'm confronted with, 
I have great peace of mind and great peace of heart being whatever, knowing that I have that sacred space available to access. Ah, so well, that has been very liberating. Yeah, yeah. So that's knowing knowing that you can um, take a vacation, have a brain brainwave vacation. Yeah, yeah at any yeah, time. At any time. That's, that's cool. <laughs> Hi, C. What about you? Do you do um, uh, that kind of meditation? Do you do guided meditation? Do you listen to guided meditations uh, on and off, or how does it work for you? Uh, I do tend towards guided meditations. Um, uh, and for some reason, it has just always worked well for me. So that's just always what I've done. Um, but I do find there's a benefit, and I think this is similar to uh, Mildred's process. There's there's a benefit to using or listening to the same guided meditations regularly, rather than just always listening to a new and different one, because it does then kind of get recorded in your brain, so you don't you can kind of pull it up at any point during the day and do it um, rather than always, you know, like, oh, I can't do my meditation because I don't have the recording of the guided meditation that I would normally do. Um, yeah, so there's there's a value in re- in repetitive practice in this case. Right, and I think that that's, in a broader sense, that's one of the most important facets of meditation in general is, is that it's, it's that, that discipline, like Mildred said, it's the repetition. And it's, it's not so much about how long you can do it. It's about whether you're doing it regularly. And that's really the key is consistently doing it on an ongoing basis. It will get easier. You may find you're able to increase the amount of time you do it, but the important thing is, do it regularly in whatever way you can to be able to stick with that. So if that means you can do it for two minutes, then start with two minutes. You know, for me, meditation is like a muscle. You you just have to work it and it will grow stronger and you will be able to be far more efficient and competent at it um, the more you do it. And don't overwhelm yourself trying to do like an hour when you first start that probably isn't going to work for you. Right. But do it for a couple of minutes, you know, just like if you can do five push-ups, then do five push-ups and do five push-ups every day for the next two weeks. And then in two weeks, see if you can do eight push-ups. Right. And you may find, oh, I never thought I could do eight push-ups. I've tried before and couldn't get this far, but now it's very easy. So it's that discipline and it's that consistency that I think is really important. And that's why even with the guided meditations, um, that I tend to focus on, uh, I will use the same ones over and over and over again because it means I'm not listening so hard to what the meditation is telling me mm. um, versus it, it, it's the trigger to get me to where I need to go, but then I can just kind of be more absorbed by the process mm. rather than kind of detach from the process in order to make sure I'm listening to what it's telling me I'm supposed to be doing. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense too. Fred, how about you? What's your meditation process? Um, for me, it's really uh, morphed and changed and you know, shaped over the course of time. Um, even before I was with the temple, I was you know, taking courses at a local metaphysical shop where I used to live and uh, you know, went through a basic development series and basic, you know, this is how you meditate series and all those types of things to um, help me realize, you know, what, what are the, you know, what's the framework? What are the, you know, for lack of a better word, what are the mechanics of actually med- meditating? Mm-hmm. How do you... How do you quiet the mind? You know, how do you quiet the mind and the body? How do you disconnect? How do you turn things off, etc.? How do you do all that? Um, and over the course of time, 
now what I would say that I do, um, especially with being part of the temple and how we do our guided meditations and things that we do within our, you know, unique practice, um, you know, there's, there's what I have, what I call very focused, dedicated meditation time, which is when I'm at my altar, lighting my candles, lighting my incense, ringing chimes, you know, working with those sorts of tools to help my mind shift now that it's been trained to do that, now that it knows how to respond to, you know, a stimulus like that. Right, right. Um, there's things that I do inside, and then there's also, you know, times where I might just be walking down the street in the middle of the afternoon, and, you know, I feel nudged to, you know, take a moment to contemplate something I'm looking at as I walk down the street, so I just sit down on the bench and I take in nature and the things that are around me, and I have a meditative moment right there. Right, right. Yeah, it, you know, I find that... um uh my meditative moments my, well my meditation in general is always uh or nearly always facilitated by recognizing something about my breathing mm. uh either something like where uh i feel congested or i feel weak or i feel usually it's like some kind of discomfort that's associated with uh weakness or a need to stretch or just a, a bodily discomfort that I can then bring my breath, the, bring attention to my breath and see how I can fix that, you know, how I can adjust that. And that that is the way I find meditation to be useful throughout the day is uh, catching up with my, with what what is constricted in my breathing and helping to liberate my breath. That's what works pretty pretty good for me. Um, and so in general, um, I think we've talked a little bit about what meditation does for each of us. And it has to do with stillness, I guess, and taking, you know, the brainwave vacation. And I see, share a little bit about what, because I, I don't think we caught quite as much from you about that. What does meditation do for you? Well, it, it, it brings me back to myself. It... Um, it allows me to come back to that center point and, and kind of re-embody myself because it's kind of bringing me back to the center within my own body so that when I then step away from meditation and I'm in the world, I feel completely grounded, completely centered, but also completely aligned. Now, meditation also is really, really great for me anyway. It's really, really great if there are... Um, if there is guidance or there are things that I'm looking to try to understand better or uh, need information about, meditation is a really great vehicle for being able to move into other realms, other mind states, um, other dimensions, I guess, um, in order to experience and see some things, in order to perhaps access spirit guides or deities or other kinds of things that aren't necessarily what we can physically see right around us, although so you can you use it in a sense you can use it as a vehicle for divination for gathering information about questions and addressing issues in your life. Uh, yes, it doesn't always have to just be issues. It may just be exploration of something ah, okay. bigger, mm -hmm. uh, you know. But um, but yes, it, it's also to kind of access and and engage with other realms and other entities and other energies beyond just the physical plane here. Right, right. 
And Fred, what does meditation do for you? What's the what's the upshot for you? What's the payoff? Hmm. I would say the biggest upshot or payoff for me would be um, the ability to tap into insight and just grow as a um, not just a person but as a spiritual being to evolve. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, and just to, as a way to, to wrap for today, um, do you guys have resources that you rec- can recommend to our listeners about, like, where do you go to get some meditation tools? Is there anything that you, off the top of your head, uh, you'd like to share? I bet you could go to Google. <laughs> <laughs> just a hint. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, well, from from a from the for the guided meditation standpoint, you know, the internet's a great thing at this point because you can go on YouTube, you can go on iTunes uh, and search for podcasts, um, or on YouTube you can search for videos, and you know, there's there's a vast amount of resources out there that can provide, uh, or or even just regular iTunes. There's there's plenty of albums out there as well that have guided meditations, um, whether you want to download them or just Play them and listen to them or whatever, uh, you know. So that's what I found to be the really big um, treasure trove at this point is just there's so much of it that's available on the internet that you can easily find things. Where it used to be, you had to kind of, especially for guided meditations, you had to hope you had a store around you that would carry such a thing, and then hope that they had something on a CD or something that might have something. Um, but that's what I would recommend if you want to do guided meditations that you can certainly find. Um, an endless variety uh, on places like YouTube or iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast site is and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Fred, anything from you? Um, I would basically say ditto to everything that I see <laughs> and Mildred has already offered. And I mean, of course, I would you know always offer the uh, my support uh, to the uh, the Temple of Witchcraft book series for the guided meditations that it offers. If you know. If any listener out there happens to be attracted to, you know, the earth-based, you know, nature-based paths, you know, mm. things of that nature, right. but most cer- most certainly your local metaphysical store or, you know, Google it. Well, I, I might also just toss in if if someone is is challenged by trying to get a meditation practice going by themselves, then there's also a lot of times um, uh, places and groups where you can go and do group meditation. So whether you look on meetup.com or for me, you know, in, in the Buddhist community, there's lots of different um, uh, Buddhist centers and, and places that you can go to where they will have maybe an evening each week that is for people to come and meditate or a day or something like that. So uh, I would also suggest looking for that, especially if someone is challenged trying to just do it uh, by themselves. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good recommendation. You know, the... the um Going to a, a sound healing event evening or something like that, or uh, a kirtan or something like that, where you're gathered together and there's some reinforcement, um, acoustic reinforcement and situational reinforcement to meditation is very helpful. And, you know, oddly enough, um, there's a Deepak Chopra and Oprah Winfrey do a free 21 day meditation. I think it's every six weeks or something, they offer a, a free one. Uh, and and that is actually pretty good. And it's twenty minutes, um, and it works pretty well. And it's and it's free, so you can try it out and see if you like it. So anyway, lots of opportunities. And if you do have questions and would like to find 
some other resources, you can contact me, of course, uh, and or any of uh, my uh, co-hosts and guests, because we've, we've all got experience here and uh, would be happy to help. So uh, with that, I think it's a good moment for us to wrap the roundtable. Thank you so much to my guests, Fred Isom, Hi C. Lutmers, and Mildred Lynn McDonald. Have a great show, John. Thanks so much, guys, and we'll be right back. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back, everyone. I'm John Carousella, your host for Convergence, in spirited conversation today with Kate Bentley. Kate is an Ayurvedic practitioner certified by the National Ayurvedic Medical Association. She's an educator immersed in love for Ayurveda and the well-being of humanity. She holds a private practice, manages the Mount Madonna Institute Ayurveda Clinic, and regularly writes articles for a local health magazine. Kate has an extensive background in education and enjoys teaching workshops and leading group-supported cleanses and classes. She's currently working on her thesis in women's health. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. So, uh, you sound like you're pretty busy. (laughs) What do you do? Do uh, do you have any spare time? I have very little spare time. I, I am a mom with children, and I also wear many hats um, in my own private practice as well as up at Mount Madonna Institute, and there's a lot of sick people out in the world suffering, so Mm. no shortage of um, folks looking for answers. Right, right. Uh, So uh, your bio says that you're working on a thesis. This is for your master's? Correct. And what's your thesis about? I focus on women's reproductive health, and my thesis is on a particular herb that's been used for thousands of years in Ayurvedic medicine called Shatavari, or Asparagus rosmosis. It has a nickname, uh, 100 Husbands, because it does have an affinity for women's reproductive health. So that's what I'm studying. I'm doing a comparative literature analysis. So I'm looking at ancient wisdom and modern biomedical science and looking at the correlations. Oh, interesting. So this um, Shatavari, or, or how, well, how did you pronounce it? We pronounce it Shatavari. Shatavari. Mm-hmm. Correct. And, yeah. and it's under the scope in modern medical analysis research? Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of scientists really looking at ancient Ayurvedic wisdom and particularly the chemical constituents within herbal formulas to look at their efficacy. So they're running clinical studies, isolating compounds, and writing research articles about them. So there's a lot available on medical journal databases. 
so I want to. Uh, this wasn't where I was going to go, but since it, it it seems like it's appropriate, there is a a notion in Western medicine that plants as pharmacy is something that we do. We can look for the quote unquote active ingredient in a plant and extract it and use it as a as a medicine but something in my in my experience and in my training uh, in shamanism uh suggests that plants aren't just chemicals they're actually beings and spirits with skills and disciplines that we can relate to absolutely so what's the ayurvedic take on that well we like to utilize the whole plants because of its synergistic abilities in the body. When you begin to isolate particular compounds and separate them from what the plant works harmoniously with in itself, it can have a stronger effect, uh, longer or shorter lasting, can be eliminated out of the body much more quickly, can be problematic, can be difficult to control. So we like to use them, the whole plant together. You know, plants are expressions of botanical intelligence and they have a lot to offer and just kind of getting straight to that chemistry can be effective, but we don't do that Ayurvedically. And is there um, is there an Ayurveda, uh, is there a notion in Ayurveda of the intelligence being relatable or engageable? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the chemistry of plants originates from the sun. So you have solar radiation, and this light actually evolves into plant consciousness. And part of that synergistic chemistry is the plant's consciousness. But then when we ingest, there's a very complex scientific process that is taking that harnessing of the sun's rays through the photosynthesis in the plant and then through another very complex process in our bodies in order to receive that plant's consciousness. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to, to study. And we, we, okay, so when we look at the chemistry as if the chemistry is the intelligence, we're actually looking at an artifact of the intelligence or a vehicle for communication, but not the intelligence itself. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I think why we as humans resonate with the plant world, particularly angiosperms or the flowering plants, is that we evolved during a very same epoch. So we've plants, dinosaurs, green plants, um, way before flowering plants historically. But when you look at how we are the same, you look at the structure of flowering plants, you know, we function almost identically. That's very, very interesting. You know, our, our human cells recognize plant chemistry. When we ingest them, there's a metabolic... Um, understanding. And that metabolic understanding might be just 
metabolysis, right? It might just be chemical, or it might be richer than that. It might actually be spiritual. Absolutely. And I think that is where we get into the solar, the light, the energetic component. You know, you can look at chemistry or enzymes as fire, and you look can look at fire, what we call in Ayurveda, Agni. We can look at ancient Greek, and it's ignite. This is where we strike a match to light something on fire. But it's also the light of your perception, and it's the perception of understanding. Um, it's also the enzymes, that fire quality within the chemistry of plants and in our human body. But when this is sparked, we there's perception, there's intelligence, there's understanding. And that can take us into deeper states of awareness. Uh, so this is an interesting piece. So, so as, I, as I've been sort of like trashing the chemistry, I, now I want to talk about the chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also above my head. I'm, I'm not a chemist. So. Well, there's something about the enzymes. The enzymes are these, are these very strange, they're almost, if, if I were to say something like hormones are the triggers for intra-organism communication. In other words, between our our uh, organ systems, are enzymes a communications mechanism that is transorganic or trans transorganism? Because we get we have enzymes internally that we we make our own some some of them, but a lot of them we take from the outside world, and and we're, they're fundamental to our ability to to function. They are, but if you break it down simplistically, it's kind of the chemical fire, if you look at something simple like how we digest food, those enzymes are the chemistry or the agni or the fire that actually metabolize it. Once something is broken down, it transforms right. and it transforms into something new. So it's transformational. We can literally, um, shamans might call it shape-shifting. Right, right. But we're doing it all the time. We're converting one thing to another and fire is that catalyst and enzymes are a more scientific way of saying the same thing. So if I'm getting this, remembering this correctly, the datus are the result of the internal shape-shifting from, from one form as ingested um, nutrition into the next. Exactly. And it's the fire that does that. It's fire that actually makes that movement happen, that transformation happen. Yes. So you referred to the word datu, which are actually our basic tissues. And we begin with lymphatic tissue. Uh, that gets a little bit deeper into blood. So we're talking about plasma and blood. And then we get into muscle and fat and bone and bone marrow. And actually in Ayurveda, we recognize reproductive fluid. And what the ancient Ayurvedic texts say that the, it takes about 35 days for the essence of whatever was ingested in the mouth to be perceived in your reproductive fluid. So to go all the way down through all the all the datus, all the way down to the most rarefied or most concentrated, uh, what is it, what is it, rarefied, concentrated, what would your shukra be? It is concentrated, absolutely. It's the, the essence there. And so this is transformational. And we say in Ayurveda, we are not just what we eat, but we are literally what we digest. So it's crucial that those enzymes or that agni, that fire is working properly. And think about, um, you know, our diet. We, we are eating a 
predominantly large percentage of plant matter. So we're harvesting the sun, ingesting it through plant material, converting that chemically into the tissues or the datus that we are. Isn't that fascinating? It's wonderful. It's clearly, I mean, it's it's as obvious as needing to eat, but it's as as elegant and poetic as Shakespeare, the way it works, you know? Yeah, and this is where my, um, you know, real passion lies in protecting the plants because we evolved with plants. They're keeping this uh, planet whole. They've created the terrain that we live on, breathe in, um, and without them, it's going to be over very quickly. <laughs> yeah. It, well, I mean, they are our first, I guess the the, the simple way to to say it is, they are the material through which the sun nourishes all of us. Exactly, exactly, and protects us and shelters us and maintains our atmosphere, our oxygen in the atmosphere. It supplies all of the organic compounds on this planet and most of the energy necessary for life. It's it's quite quite amazing this this community of plants that we uh, so casually mow. <laughs> you know, it's like oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's nice to bring awareness. I I love what you're doing on the show, just drawing people's and you know attention to that um, bridge between the animal and the plant world, and it's done in so on so many levels. Yeah, subtle and gross. So I want to ask you about Ayurveda a little bit. You know, sort of set the context for us. I I'm, I have this penchant for diving right in, and I want to just allow you the opportunity to share with us what got you into Ayurveda and what is Ayurveda, which, whichever way you'd like to go first. Well, I, I can break the word down. So I, it's Sanskrit. Uh, Ayu means life and Veda means knowledge. So this can be loosely translated. It, it, it is hard to get direct transliteration from the Sanskrit language, but could be the science of longevity, the science of life, um, somewhere in that arena. And, you know, this is thousands and thousands of years of observation. We know um, scientifically where we can start to document ancient medical texts that were at least 5,000 years ago. But what we also know is this was an oral tradition prior to a written, um, in written format. And so it's hard to say exactly how old it is, but we're going to, we guesstimate somewhere between six and 10,000 years, possibly more. Now, let's just lock on that for a second. This is a science of life or vitality that is correct. maybe 10,000, reasonably 6,000 years old. Correct. What's our modern day take on its, uh, let's say, its currency and reasonableness? I mean, is this just something that happens to be with us because it was written down? Or is this something that is still with us because it has stood the test of time? It has withstood the test of time, definitely. Um, it originated in the Himalayas um, a few thousand years ago. It was driven underground through various invasions, um, particularly the last one that India experienced, which was uh, kind of colonization by the British. 
and the introduction of more Western scientific thinking, a lot of it went um, underground. But it's experiencing an unbelievable renaissance because the world needs these universal truths. You know, it's uh, the concept is we are a microcosm of the macrocosm. And I think most conscious people understand that our separation from nature didn't really serve us very well in a short <laughs> period of time. We've <laughs> driven ourselves <laughs> pretty quickly into the ground. And I think it's an innate truth that resides within our intellect and our consciousness and at a deep cellular intelligent level that in order to get back on track, we have to not separate ourselves from nature. And I think that's one of Ayurveda's fundamental truths and strengths and why it's experiencing a resurgence all over the world, actually. So now this is, this is an interesting nuance, right? Um, Ayurveda is science, at least in some, in some sense. It, it was, it's self-described as science. Um, it is a medical science, yes. And so it that includes surgery. Okay. All right. So so this is something that's that's based on maybe not the Western notion of the scientific method, but some observation, uh, test and validate kind of experience. And and yet it is not a catalyst or uh what's the word I'm looking for? an antagonist into separation from nature. No, no. And it's quite the opposite. It actually looks at very unique attributes that reside within individuals, within environments, seasons, time periods in life, within foods, within the psychology of the mind. And it doesn't have a one-size-fits-all uh, so-called prescription. It takes the individual and um, asks, Ayurveda asks of that individual to find themselves again, to get back to their seat or their, their true nature, their seat of power, mm-hmm. comfortableness, lack of dis-ease. Lack of dis-ease. So, so easefulness, easeful, easeful living. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, so, what got you into Ayurveda? Well, I was diseased. <laughs> ah. I was uh, young. I knew I wasn't going to take um, a Western medical route. I was too young for that. You know, allopathic medicine is sheer genius. It's brilliant for diagnostic surgery, trauma, but for prevention, it it doesn't excel. And that's where Ayurveda um, comes in. Um, so. I was looking for alternative medical modalities for myself. Through a series of coincidences, I ended up in an office of the dean of the Ayurvedic school. I had doctors wanting to ultimately, you know, antibiotics, steroids, couldn't really get to the bottom of what was going on. And most of it was stress and diet. So it was diet and lifestyle, working 60, 70 hours a week in San Francisco, um, not getting adequate rest, eating inappropriate foods for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and within three or four weeks, I I was in the best shape I'd ever been in uh, once I understood. And it rang true. When somebody tells you, you know, this is what's going on, um, you don't want to make the diet and lifestyle changes, but you know intuitively that you probably should. And if you do, you'll it does miracles. 
you can get back into balance very, very quickly. So that was the impetus for me to continue studying it. I really wanted to know how she was able to um, sort me out personally so quickly. Mm-hmm. And, is, and is it your um, is it your sense that the well, I, I, maybe this is a, an unfair or unreasonable question, but is it the sorting out in which Ayurveda excels, or is it in the 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 prescription, the prescriptive uh, tools? It's definitely the rebalancing. Um, which can include treatment plans that include herbal formulations, but it's really allowing somebody to get to know themselves and to understand, you know, we're bombarded with these, for example, diets now, you know, it was no fat, then low fat, then carbs, then proteins, then, you know, it goes on and on. And the bottom line is that these diets are, there's good research behind them. There's good scientific viability within them. The thing that I feel is missing that is talked about in Ayurveda is that you have to remember the seasons. So for example, if your DNA, your ancestry is from a four season climate or you live in a four season climate now, you know, juicing and broccoli sprouts are not going to get you through four or five months of freezing cold. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't see the squirrels before they go into hibernation looking for broccoli sprouts, you know, because you're not going to survive. So this is a time when we go into a mammalian hibernation and we, we do eat nuts and proteins and fats because it gets stored in the body, the body becomes more acidic uh, or more pitta in in Ayurvedic terminology. But come spring when the snows melt, this is when the deep leafy greens, the bitter shoots are coming up through melted snow. You'll see the animals nibbling on them. You'll see animals vomiting, clearing, purging the liver, purging the blood, getting the system more alkaline, neutralized, more kapha-genic or kapha as a dosha. And this is what we need to do to, to rebalance. We know innately what to do. Um, come summer, what does nature provide? Carbohydrates galore, all the fruits and vegetables. And, you know, people from the Northern Hemisphere had very little time, maybe three or four months to get a lot done, thatch their roof, move their herbs, right. fix a fence, build a house. So you needed the energy. If you're up in the way, way snowy cold, eight, nine, ten months a year straight, you're on fats. And if you're on the tropics, you're uh, on sweet, juicy fruits, which we know cool the system. Many of them, coconut, for example, we're finding some of the most um, strongest antifungal chemistry in coconuts because it's a warm, moist, conducive to fungal growth, but the coconuts figured out how to adapt. So in Ayurveda, we look to nature. Yeah, we don't separate ourselves from it. Yeah, and it's the, I guess that's you know that brings us right back down to the the beginning of the conversation. This is this at this abstraction, uh, extraction and reduction of context into some into a pill, right? Seems to be not, uh, and I'll and I'll use the the Ayurvedic notion. It seems to be not balanced. It seems to be. Uh, an unstable kind of intervention. It is. 
And unfortunately, it's just a sign of our times. And clinically, we get a lot of folks that know they don't want to go on prescription medication and they'll come to an Ayurvedic practitioner, but there's still that symptom herb. Symptom, I'm not doing the prescription, but symptom give me the equivalent in an herb because I just want to take herbs. And again, if you're still eating a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken and a fifth of scotch at 10 o'clock at night and you've got, you know, excess stomach acid, that herb is not going to be as effective as if you made the diet and lifestyle changes. And we have to back it out. And it's multidimensional because by the time you've kind of limped into the Ayurvedic practitioner's office or the doctor's office, the disease or the symptoms are the end of the line. It was in the emotional body prior to that, and it was in the causal body before that. So depending on where your patient or client are, it's not always appropriate to start looking at their childhood baggage or their emotional wounds or even their genetic history um, they may not be willing to go there. They just want the fix. Yeah, you might need to cleanse their liver first. <laughs> right. Correct. Correct. Very so, interesting. Yeah, you have to meet that human being where they're at in space and time in that office. Hmm. Okay, so we t- we've been talking about balance. Uh, you, you spent a fair amount of time um, in- injecting that word uh, in the-, the various topics that we've covered. And you briefly mentioned... Pitta and Kapha, and there's a third dosha, um, Vata, right? Vata, yes. So tell us about the doshas, and in particular, tell us what, as you just, after you describe them, then tell us what the word dosha means. Well, there is, it's difficult, again, I, to transliterate Sanskrit, but some people have, have said it's fault, which could be perceived as an imbalance. Um, but really what the doshas are, are bioenergetics. So they, for me, are the bridge between the physical world and the energetic world. And they have very specific attributes that over thousands and thousands of years, we've observed them scientifically. We know how they're going to respond. We know where they're going to lodge in the body. And they know, we know what kind of havoc they potentially can wreak. So this is the dosha. It's a concept called tridosha, which are three because you've mentioned them, vata, pitta, and kapha. But they evolve out of a very fundamental Ayurvedic principle, which is uh, the universal attributes in order of density. If you think about how the universe is made, and the way I like to explain to some of my students is, I don't know if you've ever seen those big, beautiful animated Nova type of scientific shows where the world came into existence, but there was space. This is the lightest. It's ethereal. It's a container that holds everything. And then once there's some kind of movement, we call that wind or air or the values. Whenever you get movements, universally there will be friction and with friction comes fire. Mm-hmm. And looking at these, you know, animations when, when our universe was coming into formation, our solar system, our planet itself, you know, we were just a big gaseous fiery ball that over time the atmosphere began to condense and we ended up with our water molecule or the water element and gravity pulled that um, in and got more and more condensed and that evolved into the earth element. So this is a continuum that resides in everything. It doesn't matter 
what you look at or perceive, you will perceive one of those five elements or all of them in everything. And that's how we begin to identify how to counterbalance. If there's an excess of fire, it's obvious. We need to cool it down. If there's an excess of moisture, we need to dry it out. And this is the nature of, of the uh, of the Ayurvedic of the practice. doshas. Yeah. It's, okay. So so you're you're looking at um, these elemental I'll call them elemental archetypes and the intermixing and interplay of them in a being and assessing whether they're working well or not. Is that is that a fair statement? I would say that's pretty right on. You know, they work together. Uh, they can antagonize one another. Um, vata, which t- is the air and ether or air and space element, is the one that uh, I like to equate sometimes as the instigator because there's so much movement behind it. Right. So it can prod and push and provoke the other ones. Huh. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> The agent yeah. provocateur. Yes, exactly. So normally, um, we try to get that one in balance first, and the other ones tend to follow suit. But it depends how far along that disease process is embedded um, and how deeply into the tissues it is. Okay, so there's the notion, I think that you just outlined, the notion that um, these elements can be out of balance. Uh, so a dosha um, represents uh, an out-of-balance thing. But there's also personality types or, or body types that are doshically inclined one way or the other. Tell me about that. Well, what we do Ayurvedically, we look at two things when we are trying to gain an understanding of our client or patient's imbalances. We need to find what we call their prakriti, which their true nature, their um, their genetic makeup. This does not ever change. You're born with this doshic, if we're looking at it ayurvedically, balance. Now why would you be born with one dosha versus another? Where, how does that get how does that happen? That actually happens at the point of conception through the genetics of the mother and the father. The other influence is also the environment at the time of conception, so not just the genetics of each parent, but the conditions within which conception took place, and then also the environment during the nine months a fetus developed can change the doshic balance within the womb. Is there any doshic uh, evolution or um, uh, maturation after birth? No. What happens after birth is that the environment, the psychology, the way you're raised, your experiences will all begin to shift that doshic balance and get it out of balance. This is where people begin to feel uh, symptomatic, uh, diseased, uncomfortable, anxious, depressed, mentally unstable, any of the symptoms that any medical system can delineate is because of the experiences we have then after birth. So in theory, uh, and I guess you're saying that at the moment of birth or just just before, 
you're homeostatically um, okay no matter what your what condition you're in. You know, you might be being carried in in the womb. You might be developing a very uh, vata-like dosha, but it's okay. It's not. It's not. An, it's not an imbalanced condition. Correct. It's your true nature. So you learn how to maximize that dosha's potentiality within you. Interesting. It's only when it gets out of balance that it becomes negative. But they're neutral. The doshas are neutral. They can either work with you or against you, depending on your diet and lifestyle. Very interesting. So on on that note, let's take a short break. And when we come back, I want to touch again on um, Ayurveda and its history and then lead forward into some of the other work that you're doing. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella, in spirited conversation with Kate Bentley of the Mount Madonna Institute. Now, Kate, uh, before we went to the break, uh, we were talking about doshas, and doshas are pretty fundamental to uh, Ayurveda, and Ayurveda is pretty old, uh, and it comes to us how? I'm not a Vedic scholar, so uh, don't ask me too much about the Vedas. It's a very, very uh, long, um, voluminous written workings that um, took place uh, thousands of years ago, and there were four volumes in particular. And Ayurveda primarily comes out of the fourth, which was the Artava Veda, where we begin to talk about uh, systems and disease and herbal and other treatments. Okay, and it's uh, is there is there more to that Veda, or is it only about that? Yes, no, no. It's they're they're very long. Um, Written in um, like hymns, they're recited orally. It's a vibration, ultimately. That's very interesting, and and Sanskrit is described in this way as well. It, it's a beautiful language where we make sounds, um, and sound is one of the subtlest forms of therapy. I mean, we all know we love music. We all these are harmonies differently than others and so Sanskrit is uh, this beautiful process of enunciating and repeating things especially when we get into sound as mantra uh, which is like a sound healing vibration because the, the tongue positions itself and taps on the soft palate and it's almost as if it's kind of knocking on the door of your endocrine system. We have buried deep within the brain, the pineal and the pituitary gland. You know, these glands are responsible for some of the conductors of our hormonal system. And Sanskrit actually triggers those uh, hormonal releases. I was always wondered why 
what was said about Sanskrit was said about Sanskrit and how it might be correlated to our understanding of physiology. Uh, and you just nailed it for me. So, so for for folks who don't know, the story on on Sanskrit is that spoken Sanskrit represents fundamental sounds that correlate to the concepts they're expressing. So I've always thought of it as as the explanation that it's onomatopoeic in some way that that the phonemes and the and the way they're strung together in Sanskrit sound like in some way the cosmic concept the the uh Sheldrakean morphogenetic field <laughs> you know or or Plato's idealized uh construct uh, well i think you're on to an interesting point and in sanskrit the universal or the imperishable Om, which, you know, we see it now in yoga studios and car bumper stickers. It's just O-M, but technically it should be an A-U-M because there are three sounds within that one universal Om. And they literally represent creation, sustainer, and destroyer. And this is a cyclical movement that is constant in our universe on every level cellular galactic we are constantly creating constantly maintaining and constantly destroying and that's the sound of om om and sanskrit deploys that same kind of uh, acoustic correlation to to everything yeah i think that's really cool and and that you that you described it as uh massaging the soft palate in a way that triggers the deep brain yes, is another really interesting as within, so without, as above, so below kind of correlation. Yeah, microcosm, macrocosm, yeah. It's really cool. <laughs> That's very it, interesting. It, it is. I, I don't know if you've seen any of those. What I've just discovered recently are some of the, what we, we call uh, cymatics where we're taking metal or sand particles, even water molecules, and applying different resonances to them, including what we call in the Vedic sciences like bija seed sounds. And they completely manifest into uh, shape forms that we recognize as yantra, as sacred visuals or sacred geometry. That is so Um, fascinating. This is the, these are the building blocks of matter. So sound is what vibrates us into existence. Literally, according to the, the laws of physics of this universe, and those sounds obey those laws. Absolutely, And yes. so why wouldn't a language that leverages those sounds in particular ways have that kind of power? Of course it would, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. It, it's so it's cool it's, stuff. It's very cool stuff. <laughs> it's very cool stuff. Makes me want to study more of this stuff. Uh, it, yeah. So, um, but that's not all there is to you. You're not just about Ayurveda. You also are uh, a shamanic practitioner. What I do now, I was involved and still am deeply in shamanic work. And you know, when you look at the origins of the word shaman, it's interesting because, you know, it can go back to whatever archaeological dig that particular uh, scientist is working on. 
But what I found in ancient Sanskrit, um, kind of pre-Siberian shamanism, is um, the word in Ayurveda for when we give herbs during a very, very deep cleanse um, is shamana, with an A at the end. Really? And again, these are, if you, you just think about them from a sound perspective, breaking them down. But we've, we have shamans all over the planet, and I personally believe each and every one of us is a shaman. Um, but my origins um, go back to that world, to Ayamada uh, tribal energies in Peru, South America. And I now work helping people integrate their experiences with plants. Um, that can sometimes be too quick, too rapid, too much expansion, uh, overload of consciousness that somebody may not be able to um, facilitate the experience back into their day-to-day world. And I work as a catalyst. You know, the shamans tend to use a lot of external objects and ideas to transport somebody And in Ayurveda and yoga, we tend to not use anything external. We tend to go within and rely on ourselves. Um, The shaman that was one of my teachers was very clear with me. He said, we don't have time for 20 or 30 years of meditation and yoga. Yes, it's still crucial, important, but we're at a point of no return. And <laughs> yeah. This is why some of these plants are making themselves available today. Uh, the teacher plants, again, um, it's just an, another, I'm hearing that word a lot, teacher plants. Every plant is a teacher plant. But some of the big guns that are being used ceremonially um, very powerfully um, are a very quick way to get to a place where hopefully the consciousness has expanded enough that we see the dire need for each individual to take part in uh, preserving or helping to preserve our our um, our planet. So, so actually, that's uh, that's a good explanation for why you are doing what you're doing. It, it's for you. It's, it sounds like it's about uh, helping awaken the the as many people as possible. Let's say. As quickly as possible, absolutely. Is that right? Uh Yes. And also very responsibly. There's a lot of irresponsible um, shamanic work happening as well. Do you feel like your Ayurvedic training is an augmenting discipline? And and when I say discipline, I don't mean course of study. I mean um, strength. Like, does it help you be more disciplined in in dealing with shamanic practices? Or is it just another kind of tool? Um, Both. It is a tool and I I utilize Ayurveda every day on various levels, including uh, the shamanic work that I do, Mm -hmm. especially helping people to go within once they've had a quick awakening or having trouble integrating, um, functioning on a day-to-day level. Um, I can bring that self-reflection, the breath work, the appropriate diet, understanding rhythms of the day, uh, cycles within a year, cycles within a lifetime to help them rebalance and become effective humans and and contributors. Mm. 
Yeah. Is there? It's is, a journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> right? a journey. <laughs> is there? Is there a? So you mentioned one sort of cross-reference correlation between Ayurveda and shamanism, and that is that the, the very word shamana uh, relates to. Uh, the, the giving of herbs in a deep cleanse, which is something that a shaman might do um, in an indigenous culture. Uh, are there any other crossovers between Ayurveda and shamanism that, that come to mind that um, you, you find interesting? With Ayurveda, if you get into subtle healing, um, if you take on some of the yogic practices, um, some particularly meditative practices, Yes, there's an ability to perceive um, energetic worlds um, a little differently than you, you know, there's some people still figuring out is energy even. Um, it's very real. And our ability to perceive successfully comes with training and understanding. There's huge mistakes made with misperception. Mm. Yeah. Huge, and, and we don't want to go there. So that's where uh, yogic practices, uh, in particular, uh, quietening the mind, going within, uh, understanding um, concepts becomes crucial to somebody's uh, self-evolution. Yeah, so I, I've actually I studied shamanism more intensively first, and now I'm finding that the practices of yoga and qigong are really positive correlates and um, powerful augmenters of shamanic understanding and uh, I guess participating in the world in a, from a shamanic point of view. So I, I, I've been doing a lot, a lot with those two practices lately because they seem to be part of my personal evolution. Yeah, and I think that becomes a natural part of expansion of consciousness um, when we're not in a state of uh, internal panic or anxiety. Um, they become important practices to channel the breath, regulate the energies within the body, perceive things um, with an ability um, that is that's correct as opposed to, again, that misperception when we slow everything down. It, it's like, you know, when your mom told you just to stop and, you know, look before you leap kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's essentially the same. You, you've got to drop into a frequency that's going to allow you to see appropriately. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, um, I mean, an obvious, maybe the answer the question has an obvious answer. What is the, what's the way to drop into that, place of awareness that that uh, that understand well there's two things right there's the skill and then there's the, the there's the frame of reference that allows you to perceive i believe that everybody can find their own path to that end there are traditional paths like you just mentioned different cultures have very specific um, practices that are very systematic to get there that you can follow. You can be out on your surfboard and get there. You could be up at the top of a mountain. You could be on the dance floor. 
you could be making love. There are there are different ways that the human being begins to open to these subtle energies. Um, the way I was taught was through kind of a yogic, meditative, systematic breathing techniques. Um, one of the keys is um, to shut out sensory information because we perceive through our senses. That would be eyes, nose, ears, taste, and touch. And if we're constantly being stimulated, which we are all the time, it's very difficult to really go deep and drop in because the, we're full of distractions through that sensory input or overload. So my teacher actually went into caves and um, I was taught just to draw the blinds, even if I was in a beautiful place with a beautiful view. It was, you know, darken the room, get up before sunrise. Um, these were more, uh, are more strict disciplinary practices, but they do work. And that means you're just shutting out all sensory information so that you can begin to identify energy within and is there a uh, anything that you can share about how okay assuming that you get to the place where you are still there's still the question of how do you turn your attention to something that you've never experienced before and begin to perceive it when it's completely alien to your normal normative perceptive reality this is getting into tricky water because essentially you can't put words to the experience um, but for me my personal experience is I merge with the object of my attention in that silence interesting I too find a very powerful way of engaging the world is by a practice that I, I've come to call deep empathy, mm. where the goal is, if, if you can call it a goal, the goal is to become so intimate with something that is outside of the self that it ceases to be outside of the self, transcending dualism through empathy, so to speak. I think we're talking about the exact same thing. Quite honestly, I think when you merge with another object or person, you get to know that because you are that. Right. And that has a powerful um, enlightening effect, right? In, the, in that it, it um, exposes you to otherness while at the same time making it not alien anymore. Correct. And that's the understanding and what you were just before mentioning, the, the empathy side. And that allows us to be much more still. Yes. I mean, you know, when, when there's a, a small child crying and you're a parent or, or an older sibling or, or a cousin, aunt, uncle, you know, there's a stillness within you when the child is upset. You just hold them or cuddle them or talk to them gently or sit down on the floor with them and ask what's going on. There's a silence in that empathy. There's a quietness. There's a stilling of the mind when you merge with somebody or something else. Mm -hmm. it, because you you know it. 
Yeah. And then there's yeah. no need to explain it because how right. are you going to explain that experience to somebody else? Right, 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 <laughs> right. Uh, so how did you find shamanism? I think shamanism found me. That's what they also say about Ayurveda. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, and and this is where you get into interesting waters with astrology and karma and genetics and why some people decide they want to open up consciously in a lifetime or not. Um, I had always been, as a young child, I grew up in the UK and it was fairies and leprechauns and mushrooms and, you know, my grandmother was a rose and herb gardener and I grew up um, in and around plants, understanding the power of plants, the energetics of plants. Um, you know, I, I do believe everyone is a shaman. I think my grandma was too. She would never have called herself that. You know, she was a, a 19... 40s, 50s housewife, but um, she worked powerfully with plants in the kitchen, mm. and that's where it began for me. And uh, can you share a little more about what happened next? Well, I um, moved to the United States in the 70s, um, and like most searching teenagers, I began to ask those questions. Am I more than this? Um, I started looking into Eastern philosophy, questioning things, um, experimenting with things. And that led me quite young on a trip to India, where I thought uh, I withdrew from my sophomore year of college um, and had babysitting money. Um, and <laughs> thought I would last about three months on the finances that I had, but um, ended up calculating out I could live for a year on what I had. Wow. And that was um, a, an experience that I think changed me on a very deep level. Um, I wasn't just in India, but spent time in the Himalayas, um, and in India, and came back, and I felt very different. I couldn't conform to that sense of normalcy or whatever society was asking me to do, finish college, work in a corporation, have a family, get married. Um, That was tricky. Mm. Um, So I continued that exploration, and it's interesting. I think they have discovered um, what they're calling, along with the genome project, they're discovering more and more and isolating more and more genes, but there is what they're calling an explorer's gene. And it's it's those folks that aren't happy with the house and the white picket fence and the dog and the car. Some people are so happy with that. Um, and rightfully so. Mm. And there's about 25% of the population that cannot quite ever settle down. They're always looking for what's on the other side of the fence or what is actually going on under the water up on the moon. And I think plant explorations, particularly with psychotropics and entheogens, is another version of that exploration or that manifestation of the explorer's gene. Oh yeah, and so you have the explorer's gene. You're you're you've been exploring since your trip to India. Self-diagnosed. <laughs> I have no idea. If I have it. That's great. <laughs> but That's I can't great. settle down. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> so Ayurveda says food is medicine. Shamanism teaches us that the plants are the teachers. That that we can learn from plants. 
Uh, and we started the conversation with talking about how we ingest the intelligence of plants when we eat. I don't know exactly where I want to go with this, other than to say that, again, it's fascinating to me to examine the nature of our natures and inquire about how we integrate our consciousness with other consciousnesses, like we were talking about with merging and empathy. So the act of eating food is in some sense an act of merging with the spirit of the plant. Yes, if you're eating appropriately and consciously. And if you're not, what are you doing? I mean, that intimacy is still present. It's absolutely still present. And this is the state that we are in on this planet at this time with industrialized food and lack of consciousness in food and GMOs in food, excess processed sugar and saturated fats that aren't appropriate. We, as I mentioned before, in Ayurveda, you had said, you know, you are what you eat. You are literally what you digest. Right. Right. Literally, your cells become what you have ingested. Yeah, it's the material from which you build yourself. Absolutely. It's also the, the energy store from which you animate yourself, right? Right. So, so, um, so what are we doing when we're processing food and consuming processed food? What, what's actually happening there? We, there's a word that we use uh, in Sanskrit, which means tamasic, which is an energy of inertness. Ah, mm -hmm. And so, for example, one of the things I would like listeners to know is, well, is it okay to eat leftovers? I get this question a lot in, in classroom settings and, and with clients in the clinic. You know, can I eat my leftovers? Can I eat frozen food? Can I eat canned food? And the answer is yes, you can. What happens when you pull a carrot right out of the ground and you rinse it off and you steam it lightly or eat it raw there's what we call prana. This is like chi in Chinese medicine. It's mm -hmm. the vitality or the life force. Mm -hmm. The energy of that object is literally singing with vitality and life force. And as it decays and ages in the refrigerator or on, you know, it gets put in a can or gets frozen, the prana just slows down and comes to eventually a halt. There's still fiber, there's still minerals, what we call kapha, um, there's still the ability to digest it. No, but there's we, still calories, right? So There's, there's still, still calories, energy. yeah. You're still going to be nourished to a certain extent, but we lose the prana. And prana is essential to life. So it's, a, so it's an interesting question. Um, I, I've, I've had this long-standing question uh, that I ask, I ask myself, I ask the universe, uh, what is the viscosity of chi? The viscosity of chi. Yes, and, and so in, in a way, why you didn't say cheese? I could have answered that. Chi, <laughs> I don't know, John. Well, but so what is the shelf life of prana? Oh, now we're getting into. I don't know if I can answer. I don't know if there is an answer. It's pretty immediate. You know, prana is constant. It's circulating in our body all the time. When we inhale, we're inhaling prana. Um, food has prana. It, it is the life force. It's not just that one breath. 
Um, it circulates in the body. Some of the breathing techniques that yogis use to gain siddhis or powers is learning how to harness, um, control pranic energy in the body. So you can apply it to different regions within the body, which includes expanding of kundalini energy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there's an answer to a shelf life of prana. It's, it's pretty um, immediate. Mm. Mm-hmm. I would say just based on my own experience of feeling when, for example, my farmer's market carrot goes in the fridge when it's lost most of its prana, I would say 24 to 48 hours possibly. Mm. Maybe, maybe it's more appropriate to talk about it as having a half-life. Yeah, and, and I'm probably not the right person to, to answer that question, but usually you can feel when there's pranic energy in something. Mm. There's a resonance, there's a vibration, there's a frequency. Um, it, it plays a song, and this is back to shamanicism. Um, These, the plants sing, and this is when you hear shamanic chants, tribal, jungle um, song, they are the plants that are singing. The shaman is just a channel for that. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow, Kate, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but we're almost out of time. So is there is there any last thought you'd like to share with with our listeners about the work that you're doing, the about the, the what you've discovered? Anything you want to share? Well, I want to thank you for the opportunity for me to be a channel for the plants. Okay. Number one, um, and <laughs> our pleasure. <laughs> there's always just seek and you shall find. Keep looking, keep opening doors, keep exploring, keep asking questions, keep questioning the rules and authority. We are all one. We are all one. Mm, great, <laughs> sage advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if folks want to get to know you and or your work a little bit better, how should we direct them? Um, I would say just come straight up the mountain, mountmadonnainstitute.org. So that's all spelled out, one big long word, mountmadonnainstitute.org. And we have free classes, workshops, camping, all kinds of clinics and classes and workshops. It's an amazing learning environment for, um, and, and you can reach me up there. Wonderful. Where I hang out. (laughs) Okay, Kate, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. John, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And we'll be right back. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. Now, many of you know that uh, for a, a while this year, I was living in Provo, Utah, uh, right at the foot of the Wasatch Front. And while living there, after work, I'd head out to Rock Canyon Park and start hiking up the face of Squaw Peak. As I came to know the mountain face a bit better, I began to realize the huge contrast between the human trails and the deer trails. The human trails were always very direct. They were also 
often very hazardous and damaged by erosion. The human goal-driven mindset of see the rock outcrop, get to the rock outcrop, resulted in some uncomfortable, slippery, steep, and easily damaged trails. Often, they required so much exertion just to navigate that I found them, frankly, not worth the effort. The deer trails, on the other hand, were lovely. Clearly, these creatures knew the terrain. And clearly, they were not typically in a hurry. Eventually, I realized that wherever I was on the mountain, and wherever I wanted to go, there was a deer trail, sometimes obvious, sometimes faint, that I could follow to get there. If the route was circuitous, it was because the deer either didn't find it that compelling of a destination, or the terrain required it. It was a way of seeing evolution in action. The trails that led to the most traveled places were the most evolved, the most identifiable, and the most easy to navigate. The less used trails were, well, less used. What was interesting to see was that there were often several trails to a destination. Invariably, the one that was most used was the best one. By contrast, I realized that if a trail was lightly used, it was probably not the best route, either to the ultimate destination or even to the next trail segment that would lead me to the ultimate destination. And frankly, by comparison to human trails, they were almost just the opposite. Often, the human trails most used were actually the worst. So, it was pretty simple. The deer walked the mountain day and night, and they knew the best routes. I also discovered that having a plan was not a strategy for success, because the deer don't typically have a plan to get somewhere specific. They have a plan to eat, survive, be safe, and enjoy life. So when you follow a deer trail, you have to keep that in mind. It's almost like the Sanskrit concept of spontaneous right action. The deer do what they do because their ancestors did it and it worked. So following a deer trail can be like falling into deer beingness if you're willing to see the way as the deer see it. And that means not looking too far ahead. The way will reveal itself in the moment. Sure, sometimes I would find myself heading far afield from my desired destination. Sometimes I would double back. Just as often, though, I would let the trail take me because I knew that if the trail was good, it was because the deer liked where it led, and so would I. The footing on the western face of the Wasatch Front is not so good because the terrain is arid and the vegetation is sparse. There's a lot of small scree mixed into the soil. There are tuffets of grass. There's woody, twisty sage and low pine and rocks. And the slope is quite steep. Steep enough that you can't really walk level across the side of the mountain. You have to kind of try to dig your up-mountain side of your foot into the soil, hoping to make a mini platform under your foot. Steep enough to easily lose your footing and then slide a rather long way until some unhappy alpine desert plant says, Ow! upon impact, and you say, Ow! too. So, over time, as I got more intimate with the surface of the mountain and the nature of the deer trails, I learned to walk in a different way. Because the landscape is so open, it's possible to walk, or rather attempt to walk, anywhere, in any direction, more or less at any time. 
So it's possible to pick your path literally one step at a time. Although I didn't really understand the power of this situation at first, eventually I found it surprisingly beautifully generous. Here's what I mean by that. Typically, when we walk or hike, or at least when I do, my mind is focused on the distance, the destination, the view, whatever. If I can safely navigate without looking at my feet, I do. The feeling is one of more or less continuous motion flowing along the trail. When the footing is not so good, one has to direct one's attention downward, closer to the action. And in really tough footing, you have to plan and plant one step at a time. Well, I was often moving relatively quickly through tricky footing, and often enough I was racing the ebbing daylight, so sometimes I had to hurry a bit. What I discovered in these conditions was something of a self-limiting habit. I would be moving along, picking a path or a faded, lightly used deer trail, and would be propelling myself through it as if. As if it were more secure than it actually was. As if it were longer, straighter, or less steep than it actually was. And what I realized over time was that my approach was actually hugely inefficient. Slowing down, getting intimate with the terrain around my feet, led to some amazing discoveries. Within the terrain of the Wasatch Slope, there are all kinds of footing options. For example, one could step from rock to rock, where the rocks are stable. Or rock to rock, where the rocks are unstable. Or sand to sand. Or sand to rock. Or sand to vegetation. And innumerable other combinations. What this means is that, in any given step, a myriad of footings, or stepping experiences, were available. And I could, would, had to in fact, integrate the length of my stride and the direction of the stride into my calculus. So I could take a three-foot stride from rock to rock, or a one-foot step from rock to sand. One might be heading up, the other slightly down. Suddenly, my trail calculus opened up as the resolution of my observing perspective increased. The more attention I paid to the immediate terrain around me, the more options I had to choose from. In fact, what I discovered was that I could find virtually any and every kind of stepping experience at any moment. The land, quite literally, could give me the step of my choice as long as I wasn't overly concerned about the absolute instantaneous direction or slope of that step. By focusing on the terrain around me, I was able to find exactly the kind of balance and effort I most wanted or needed. Rather than hiking blind to my feet and focused on my destination, I began hiking ambivalent to my destination and focused on my feet. It was an amazing experience. Each time I hiked this way, I became more and more intimate with the slope the soil, the, the water in the soil, the rocks, the plants, even the deer. Because I was increasingly attentive to the very present moment, that moment of where my feet were, where I wanted to go, and how the land would and could accommodate my energy and intention to go there. Sometimes I would take long strides across rocks. Other times I would literally do switchbacks that were no wider in the span of the ball of my foot to the tip of my big toe. Suddenly, by being clear about what kind of experience I wanted, 
the land seemed to miraculously manifest it, literally right under my feet. What was the upshot of this exercise? Mostly efficiency. I know that might sound strange, but distance covered was not the thing to optimize around. It was actually energy expended. With the temperature and the altitude as major factors in my experience, and the steep slope and tentative footing dominating most escapades, it really became an exercise in managing my energy. And I found I could manage it beautifully by carefully choosing my next step. What did I want to experience? A solid platform under my feet? A lift? An easy, knee-joint-friendly drop? Relief for my ankle stabilizers. Each one of these experiences called for a different choice of step. And miraculously, the right step almost always appeared. If I was clear about what I wanted, the way would become clear as well. The great challenge was to stay present. Because the next step was often not the same as the last. Blind striding was not efficient. Attentive, almost meticulous step selection was very efficient. As I grew more practiced, I could keep my focus on step selection more easily while at the same time enjoying the scenery. But step selection remained an essential, almost meditative harmonic in my hiking. I really enjoyed the communion that such attentiveness exposed me to, invited me to, with the mountain. There was a kind of intimacy that the mountain offered me. It revealed to me that was unexpected. Not coy or shy, more like happy that someone was actually willing to engage with it so intimately. And it felt generous. As above, so below. As within, so without. As on the mountain, so in life. Being clear, very clear, meticulously clear about what you want and being in deep communion with your surroundings seems to be the way to see the way forward. At least for your next step. And the world, when you're operating with this frame of reference, turns out to be a very generous place. Letting go of the goal long enough to bear witness to the resources around you, sometimes the resources literally under your very feet, can bear surprising fruit. And if you're willing to make your focus on being safe, eating well, and enjoying life like a deer, that often ego-driven goal thing might just take on less significance, and you might find yourself enjoying the journey a whole lot more. We'll be right back. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. November is such a lovely time of year. Time to meditate, to turn inward a bit. Time to become intimate with your surroundings, your immediate surroundings. The generous earth has begun to sleep. The harvest is in. Time to pay attention to your inner being. Enjoy yourself. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.